Welcome to another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents podcast, a production of the Criminal Law Department at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School in Charlottesville, Virginia. Every two weeks, we release a new episode. Today, we're going to have a conversation about a recent opinion from the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. Please note that these episodes may contain facts and circumstances surrounding criminal trials. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents CAF Chats. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Dave Seagraves, United States Marine Corps, and with me is Major Dustin Morgan. Today we're going to discuss United States versus Fernando M. Brown, Chief Machinery Technician, United States Coast Guard. The opinion was published on October 23, 2023. Dustin, can you give us some of the facts on this case? Yes, sir. No problem. I just may need to step in from time to time to explain some of the sea service terms, um, as I am not nearly as familiar with them as you are. So United States Coast Guard Cutter Polar Star um, is where the setting of these offenses typically happen. So while at dry dock, which is, from what I understand, a place where ships go to get fixed and repaired. Correct. <laughs> the accused in this case, Chief Mastery Technician Brown, was part of, of a Chief Petty Officer group text. So Chief Petty Officer, as I understand it, for those of you that don't know, for those of you who speak Army um, or Air Force even, is an E-7. Do I have that right, sir? You're correct. So E-7 for both the, the Navy and the Coast Guard can be referred to as Chief Petty Officer or or just a Chief, whereas E-7 in Marine Corps is a Gunnery Sergeant, uh, Army Sergeant First Class, and I believe uh, Air Force is Technical Sergeants. That's right. Yes, sir. So senior NCOs is just the way to think about it. So they have a group text where they discuss work matters for the most part. I mean, there's some personal discussions that happen there too, but mostly it's, it's work matters. So they create something called the chief's mess. And this was designed mostly, like I said, to pass along work-related information because while at dry dock, the crew's not all together. They're geographically separated for most of it. So sometimes while it included some levity and some friendly conversations, they mostly used it to talk about like orders for the day, what each people were doing and for accountability. So this is where things go wrong though. And Chief Mastery Technician Brown starts sending some messages that really have nothing to do with work. So the first instance involved when CPO JD, while working on the cutter, sent a picture of himself to the group text. So appellant took the photo and he modified it, adding a crude drawing of male genitalia to CPO JD's forehead and then resent the, the image to the group. So not work related, obviously. So at the time he sent the message, CPO JD was down in dry dock and he received the message and checked his phone to see if anything was pertinent. So basically if it was work related. The second instance involves senior chief petty officer KB. So he missed a chief's call and appellant sent a picture with a scantily clad man along with a text message saying, found out why chief missed the call. So this text was sent around 7.39 p.m. outside of regular duty hours. The third instance occurred when the appellant sent a picture of Chief Petty Officer SC's high school yearbook photo with a rather graphic depiction below it. It involved Chief Petty Officer SC stealing another person's woman, but just just all in all, it was disrespectful. I'll spare the listeners from going through the exact wording of the message. Chief Petty Officer uh, SC testified at the court-martial that she felt embarrassed when appellant posted the photo to the group. So Chief Petty Officer Brown was convicted as special court-martial of three specifications of Article 91, which 
which is disrespect to a fellow non-commissioned officer, and one specification of sexual harassment. At the court martial, he was eventually reduced to the grade of E4, was issued a reprimand, and was put on restriction for 30 days. So restriction, for those of you that don't know, generally you'll be confined to some portion of the ship or to the base. So you'll just be allowed to go to small areas of the installation or in the Coast Guard or the Navy or the Marines if you're on a ship, just a small portion of the ship. Not a pleasant punishment, but not confinement like we normally think about it. On appeal, the Coast Guard Court of Criminal Appeals dismissed the sexual harassment specification. They set aside and dismissed that Article 92 charge and specification, affirmed the remaining three specifications of Article 91, the disrespect to a non-commissioned officer, and reassessed appellant's sentence. So they only reduced appellant to an E6, but otherwise affirmed the reprimand and the restrictions for 30 days. Yeah, before we go to Cap's opinion, just to unpack a few of these terms, the chief's mess kind of comes historically from, you know, once once you become a, an E7, you become a chief. And then you have an E8, which is a senior chief, which one of the specifications was disrespect of a senior chief. And then you have a E9 master chief. But but once you're an E7 in the C service, you're you're considered a senior non-commissioned officer. And it also gives you extra well, responsibility, but also some privileges because the chief's mess actually comes from where the chief's eat. They have their own room or place on the ship, kind of like the, the officers on a ship would have the wardroom. So it is not only for work, but it's also kind of a almost like a social fraternity as far as like, you know, you, you've, you've kind of made it, if you will. Other things to, to think about here that are going to become important in a little bit. We look at that first uh, specification was uh, Chief Petty Officer JD. And another thing that's kind of interesting is that Article 91 allows E7 on E7 crime, if you will. Uh, whereas 89 is a superior commission officer, as in this case, a chief petty officer can violate Article 91 by being disrespectful to another chief petty officer in furtherance of their duties or if they're, they're doing their duties at the time. But the first one, that person was in dry, down in dry dock when they received it. And apparently this is the type of person that has the notifications going on on their phone. So as soon as he you know, got the notification, checked it. Yeah, and that will become important later. I mean, as, as you noted, he's the only one where that is laid out in the back section. So the first instance is the only one where messages received and sent almost simultaneously and then viewed at, at that point. So hold on to that thought for later as we discuss whether or not each specification survives appellate review. All right, so now we go to CAF. What issue did CAF grant? So the question that they asked... Uh, specifically is, are appellant's convictions under Article 91 legally insufficient where there is an absence of evidence that the charged conduct occurred in the sight, hearing, or presence of the alleged victims while they were in the execution of their office? All right, Dustin, so, so what holdings do we get here? So it's interesting. So this case is complicated for many different reasons, but kind of first and foremost is the way the court is split on this issue. So we do get a holding, um, but the majorities here are interesting, and I'll explain that after I explain each of the two holdings that you get. So first, as Judge Olson writing for the court says, a majority of this court holds that an accused service member can be convicted under Article 91 even if his or her disrespectful conduct occurs outside the physical presence of the victim. So there was a question from that question presented whether or not physical presence was required, and the court here is saying no. And second, a majority of the court holds that under Article 91, service members can only be held criminally liable if at the time they conveyed the disrespectful language or behavior, the victim was then in the execution of his or her office. So two real important questions are answered here. So the first 
physical presence is not required for Article 91 when it's disrespect to a non-commissioned or warrant officer. And specifically, the following sentence there, essentially, they're speaking directly to the idea of using digital devices such as smartphones, even when uh, done via social media. That's right. Yes, sir. And then second is the temporal element of this. So when does it have to happen? So the disrespectful content has to be conveyed at the time when the victim is in the execution of their office. Become important this distinction between conveyed versus received. And remember that it's conveyed for purposes of Article 91 going forward now. And there's a contemporaneity requirement. That's right. Like a a contemporaneous requirement. So conveyed while they're contemporaneously in the execution of their office. So really fine point, but you'll see how that plays out kind of when you look at each of these three specifications in turn. Now, I mentioned something funny about the way the court was split here. It's, it's really kind of a one-two-two opinion with majorities being fractured over these two holdings. So you have Judge Olson writing for the court. He's the consistent member of the court that, that, that's, you know, the consistent theme throughout each of these two specific holdings. So Judge Sparks and Judge Johnson uh, uh, concur in this first part of the holding um, that talks about it not having to be in the physical presence. And then it gets flipped and Judge Hardy and Judge Maggs join in the second part. We're talking about it has to be at the time the disrespectful message is conveyed that the victim is in the execution of their office. So it's almost as if the majority just flips halfway through the opinion and you have two new judges joining on to the opinion. Interesting to see it play out that way. And on first glance, you may think, well, there's no real precedential value of this because it's not a true majority. But there is a true majority because you have three votes for each of these two separate and distinct legal principles. So this is good law going forward. First time I read it, I was a little confused on that. But as I kind of dug down into how the numbers worked out, this is the law of the land when it comes to Article 91 going forward. But definitely a different scenario than we see in most of our cases. For sure. Typically, it's just like if it were to be 3-2, it would just be the same three judges on the opinion throughout. You don't see that flip happen most of the time. So, so interesting just for that point. So what standard did they use when they reviewed the case? So again, it's, it's complicated because the way that this broke out. So it's a legal question. And so a question of legal sufficiency. And that's reviewed de novo. I know that we talk a lot about abusive discretion or we talk a lot about whether something's waived or forfeited. De novo is is unique in that it's a fresh, clean look at it. There's no presumptions brought in. There's no judge's ruling brought in. There's not that starting point that you typically have in an appellate case. It's just it's just a fresh look by the court. And the same is true for the question of statutory construction, because ultimately they're going to have to look at what Article 91 means. Because remember, they're, qu- they're questioning whether it has to be in the physical presence of the victim and at what time the message has to be conveyed. And so that question of statutory construction is also reviewed de novo. So, so interesting for us here. Now, for the legal sufficiency, just to point out one extra point about that, the court will have to consider everything, whether any viewing of the evidence in a light most favorable to the prosecution, whether any rational trier of fact could have found the essential elements of the crime beyond reasonable doubt. So somewhat in the government's favor, but again, still de novo. For sure. Yes, sir. And also, like curiously here, the, the court talks about the presidential interpretation of the elements of, of a substantive offense under the UCMJ when they talk about how the statutory construction argument is going to play out here. A fine point for listeners that are unfamiliar with the way the manual for court-martial is laid out. So the manual for court-martial is kind of like the court-martial Bible or whatever like holy book you believe in or whatever important text that you think um, kind of serves as the, the greatest example of uh, how-to manual. 
So the main of a court martial has the rules for court martial in it. It has the military rules of evidence in it. It has the UCMJ in it. But also in part four of the MCM is the presidential implementation of the Uniform Code of Military Justice, the punitive articles of it. So you'll have an article. So here, Article 91, for instance, you'll have the actual statutory text in bold. And then after that, everything that's not in bold is the presidential implementation of it. So it has the max punishment. It has what terms and definitions may mean. And for purposes of this case, it has the elements of the offense. The elements of the offense aren't listed in the statute. It's not going to tell you you have to prove these five things. It's just the language of the statute. The president breaks out each of the things the government has to prove in order for the accused to be convicted of this article of the UCMJ. And interestingly, the court talks about not being bound by the president's interpretation of the elements of a substantive offense. We'll see later, though, that that may get flipped a little bit because they say right after that, nonetheless, when the president's narrowing construction of a statute does not contradict the express language of it, it's entitled to some deference and we will not normally disturb that construction. So while it's not owed complete deference, the court will provide it some if it's narrowing the constraints of the statute and not expanding it. Yeah, I think we'll talk about that a little bit more with the second main point or second main holding of the case. But first, let's let's move to the, the first one as far as requiring presence. Sure. So the first thing they look at is within the sight, hearing, or presence. So the language of Article 91 is pretty broad if you just look at it. So it's any warrant officer or enlisted member who treats with contempt or dis- is disrespectful in language or deportment towards a warrant officer, non-commissioned officer, or petty officer, while that officer is in the execution of his or her office, shall be punished as a court-martial may direct. You notice there, nothing about sight, hearing, or presence within that statutory language. So... Where that comes from, then, is that part four presidential implementation guidance that we talked about. So if you go to that portion of the manual for court-martial and you look at the elements of the offense, one of those elements will require that the behavior or language be within the sight or hearing of the warrant, non-commissioned, or petty officer concerned. If we think back to what the court just said about whether or not they give that presidential implementation any kind of deference, it's a narrowing versus expanding view. So if you think about it, this is really narrowing the outreach of that statute, of that article of the UCMJ. Because you go from that broad language, this talks about being disrespectful to a warrant, non-commissioned, or petty officer without reference to when and where it happens. You have this presidential guidance that's narrowing it in that requires within the sight or hearing of the warrant, non-commissioned, or petty officer. So it's going to be given some deference because of the way it constricts the reach of Article 91. It's also important for us all to remember that I've said it many times. This is a very you know textualist court, very very strict strict interpretation. They want the plain meaning language of the words, and that's how they will view basically everything. Right. I mean, given that, it's kind of surprising where they go next because those words seem to require physical proximity, like physical sight, hearing, like to happen in in that quote close nature. Um, but they look to other portions of the UCMJ to kind of guide that further because ultimately the statutory language is going to control. That's what they're always going to go back to time and time again. So they note that the explanation of Article 91 refers the reader back to the, the discussion of disrespect in Article 89, another provision of the UCMJ that punishes disrespect. So it states that presence is not essential to be disrespectful. 
So in other words, regardless of physical proximity, this element is met so long as an accused causes his or her disrespectful language or behavior to come within the sight or hearing of the victim. So while the presidential guidance seems to narrow it to a point that requires physical proximity, ultimately the words of the statute are going to ring true and are going to, going to control. So while it's going to be given some deference, it's not the be-all, end-all. The court goes back to Article 89 and says physical presence isn't required. It's where we get that holding of Part 1 of the opinion that we referenced at the beginning of the, of the podcast. And just makes sense. I mean, we're dealing with technology all the time. We're dealing with Teams meetings, dealing with Zoom calls that are integral to our practice and, and to just how we do business nowadays. Text groups, it's just how the world works. And so that reading makes it more applicable to our, our current world. Yeah, in a modern world, sir, it, it seems totally like unreasonable to me to think that uh, like an E3 could disrespect an E7 over a text message. That, that's it reads disrespect to me. Like it, it makes perfect sense given the broad nature of the statute for that to be a crime punishable by Article 91. Very well. Anything else on this first issue? No, I think that about sums it up. All right, let's move on to the second issue. So prong two examines in the execution of office because if you look back to the elements that, that are outlined by the president, the last element, element E in the manual for court-martial requires the following, and quote, that the victim was then in the execution of their office. So the question becomes, when is someone in the execution of their office? So ultimately, we've already talked about the holding. It's they have to be in the execution of the office when the accused engaged in the disrespectful behavior. But where Where's that coming from? Well, you know, listening to the oral arguments, the chief judge kind of put the government on, on spot about you know, the definition of then. I mean, kind of interesting. You know, the, the, the word then means so much coming into this opinion. So you look at three delta in those elements that the accused then knew that the person toward whom the behavior or language was directed was a warrant, non-commissioned or petty officer. So essentially when they're committing the act, they then knew that person was of that status. But then, as you said, uh, echo right there that the victim was then in the execution of office. And so the chief judge, you know, put the government on, on you know, well, question him pretty directly. How, how does then mean two different things? Right, because ultimately they're going to want the UCMJ and all its implementation to be consistent with each other. Like you can't have things that mean two different things, especially when they're right next to each other. You know, you have part D and part E of the elements. You can't have then mean something in D and mean something else in part E. It just would kind of throw the whole thing off. Yeah, so it, the government tried arguing that it was a part of a course of conduct. The court rejected that, you know, saying that if they read it that way, one, be inconsistent, you know, defining the word then. But also you, you'd have the kind of a, a weird scenario where, you know, multiple people could be disrespected in one message. Two people could get, could receive it at one point and, and not be in the context of the duties, but then a third could game the system and wait till they were doing their duties and receive that message and, and you'd have disparate results. Right. I think especially given that the fourth element requires them to know at the time of the disrespectful message that they were a non-commissioned petty or warrant officer, like it makes perfect sense to just read the concurrency requirement being at the time that the message is conveyed. I just think that the court took a pretty common sense and plain reading approach to the elements in total to reach this result. And it, and it really makes sense when you read all of them together. So again, just wrapping up, they, they, we essentially have a concurrency requirement for both the, you know, the sending and the receiving of this disrespectful message. Right. So it, it really did matter. Like contemporaneously, receipt and sending, that, that played an important role in determining the final outcome of this case. Like just the, the timing really mattered when you look at the legal sufficiency of these three specifications. Now, another interesting thing was that the Coast Guard Court of Criminal Appeals made the factual determination that when the members of this chief mess group, when they 
opened up their message that was part of their duties because of military usage that they use this for passing word or passing information. And, and CAF was stuck with that fact-finding because CAF interprets, but they don't find facts. That's right. So Article 67 does not grant them the fact-finding authority that the courts of criminal appeals have. We've referenced this quite a few times now in this podcast about how broad Article 66 is in granting powers to the courts of criminal appeals across the services. And one of the things that it allows them to do is you know, make findings of fact when it's essential to reaching the legal conclusion they have to make. And unless they're being unreasonable, like I think it's clearly unreasonable even, they, they can't have that factual finding overturned. So the court takes that and says, listen, if they opened it, they were in execution of their office, but they're looking back to sending as well. And that's that's where they're able to make a distinction. All right, Dustin, anything else we need to talk about on that second holding? No, no, sir. Okay, so now applying the holdings to our facts, how to come out. So, so thinking back to the way we frame the facts, um, so with Senior Chief Petty Officer KB and Chief Petty Officer SC, there was no evidence on the record like there was with Chief Petty Officer JD that they opened the message immediately after receiving it. If they did, it wasn't put on the record. So even under the standard where they're reviewing de novo in the light most favorable to the government, there still has to be some evidence that satisfies that newly created element or newly interpreted way of looking at that element that it has to be at the time of sending. So there's no direct way to link the contemporaneous viewing, which would put them in the course of their duty, with the sending by the accused in this case. So because there's no evidence that it happened simultaneously, the specifications that allege crimes against Senior Chief Petty Officer KB and Chief Petty Officer SC are not legally sufficient. But on the on the other hand, with Chief Petty Officer JD, there was evidence that he opened the message directly after receiving it. There was that contemporaneous receipt and then opening, which puts him in the course of his duty. So at that point, that satisfies that element and makes it legally sufficient. So two specifications are no good. One survives appellate review. So basically, as you said, CAF affirmed charge one, specification one, that specification with Chief Petty Officer JD. Uh, they reversed as specifications two and four, but CAF ultimately returned the record to the Judge Advocate General of the Coast Guard for remand to the Court of Criminal Appeals to either reassess the sentence based on the affirmed findings or order a sentence rehearing. Right, because the CAF does not have that reassessment power that the CCAs have. Under U.S. v. Winkleman, um, the CCAs have the power to reassess the sentence. So we'll see what the Coast Guard Court of Criminal Appeals does with it. All right. So as we always do, let's talk about how, how can the field or the fleet use this. So I think the big takeaway is we have answers when it comes to Article 91 now. So the two big answers are just the holdings of the case. So if you're thinking of charging this one, uh, this offense, or if you're defending against this offense, you know now that electronic communication means satisfy the presence requirement required by one of the presidentially prescribed elements of Article 91. And you know now that it matters that the time that the message was sent will dictate whether or not the person was then in the execution of their office. So... You have to look at those two things. How was it sent? And does that meet presence? And remembering electronic communications meet that requirement. And the temporal requirements is really going to play a big role in these cases going forward. Sure. You're going to have to have some either digital evidence uh, from both sides or some testimony, but something that says that, okay, at the same time, contemporaneously, it was sent and received. Yeah. Or if it, like, I, I think it would be pretty easy to prove if it was sent during the duty hours. Like that would probably qualify as well. But you're going to have to have some evidence similar to what Chief Petty Officer J.D. put on the record here. Like, hey, I either opened it and viewed it at the same time I sent it, which, you know, we say we know can meet that if you make that kind of factual finding. Or, you know, I work from 9 to 5 and I was sent the message at 10.15. Sure. 
Makes sense. Another big takeaway, I, I think, uh, for everyone is uh, group chats beware. Basically, I think for all the practitioners out there, it'd be a good idea to, to advise soldiers, Marines, et cetera, that disrespect over a chat group can subject them to prosecution. As we saw here with Article 91, you can be, you know, E7 on E7 crime. You know, you can be the, the same rank. But either way, it's so easy for people to, to use the convenience of a group chat or a WhatsApp group or something like that to pass information. But they also have GIFs. They also are, are able to send memes and they can devolve quickly. And, and everyone should be advised that uh, to put them, themselves on guard on, on, and watch their you know, behavior in these groups. For sure. I mean, they said, uh, they said there was some levity to this text message group with, um, you know, and pardon me for just knowing some E7s and E8s, probably a little bit more wild levity than they alluded to. But if you go too far, you can subject yourself to prosecution. For sure. Oh. Dustin, anything else for the field? No, I think we did this one justice, sir. All right. Well, the members of the criminal law department here at the Judge Advocates General's Legal Center and School, or TJAGLICS, greatly appreciate you joining us for this podcast episode. Your time is important, and we thank you for listening. Feel free to tell other people who you think could benefit from this podcast. And as Major Josh Mickelson would say, don't forget to smash that subscribe button. And welcome back. This is the rare podcast where we have a postscript update. So we had recorded this episode. We're about to send it out. And we find out on the 3rd of January that CAF had rescinded their opinion. This is a pretty rare occurrence. It's only happened once in the last three terms, actually. The last time it happened was Brubaker Escobar. Typically, it happens because either the court or the council or someone misses something in the law. This is exactly what happened here. So after the opinion was rendered by CAF, um, the appellant in this case filed a motion for reconsideration stating that the Coast Guard Court of Criminal Appeals did not have the authority to issue findings of fact. Once again, joined by Lieutenant Colonel Seagraves to explain why that is. So I'm going to throw it to you to kind of explain what happened here and why we had the decision vacated in a new opinion on 10 January. So basically, uh, the, the opinion we gave the rest of the brief on was October 23rd, 2023 issued. Uh, in there, under application of the second prong of this case, the CAF talked about the CCA's fact-finding ability, specifically that the, the lower court determined that the victim officers were, quote, in the execution of their office, end quote, anytime they opened the chief's mess group text to read a message. And they said because of Article 66 UCMJ, they had the fact-finding ability and that was controlling because the CAF does not have a fact-finding ability. But lo and behold, we found out that this didn't come to the CCA via Article 66. Again, Article 66 has that factual sufficiency review, but the procedural posture of this case uh, said that upon application of the appellant, the Judge Advocate General of the Coast Guard sent the case to the United States Coast Guard of Criminal Appeals pursuant to Article 69 Delta UCMJ, not Article 66. Yeah, I know we uh, try to avoid being too appellate nerdy on this case uh, on the show um, from time to time. We have to delve into this, though, because there's some nuance here. So I know I know that anybody who's been in this podcast typically talks about the great power that the CCAs have under Article 66. So the courts of criminal appeals are sometimes basically de novo courts. They get to make findings of fact, conclusions of law, and decide whether someone's actually guilty or not. Article 66, in short, is just a, a pretty great appellate power. And that's typically how cases get up to there. You have a qualifying offense that meets the jurisdictional limit. So either getting a bad conduct or a dishonorable discharge or a dismissal are getting enough confinement time that triggers automatic review. But in those cases where they don't meet that, there's a separate appellate procedure. You're not going straight to the Court of Criminal Appeals. You're actually applying through the Judge Advocate General of your specific service through review under Article 69. And, and those present somewhat of a different way of looking at it. 
the big thing being Article 69E, which prohibits the courts of criminal appeals from making those specific findings of fact. They don't have their full Article 66 powers. They're limited only to questions of law. Seems like a small distinction, but here made quite a bit of difference. Yeah, that 69E, you know, says basically, you know, action only on matters of law. The court may take action only with respect to matters of law, not that fact-finding ability under Article 66. So we had a discussion you know, before we came back here for the postscript, and uh, the language is, is important here. So the, the, the Coast Guard TJAG did not certify or order a 66 review, but they merely sent the case to the CCA pursuant to 69D. So that means that 69 ECHO does apply, no fact-finding, only matters of law. Uh, and you'll see that in the new opinion that came out on January 10th, specifically looking at footnote 9. There's a discussion of that right there. Right. So because the TJAG didn't send it, which they have the authority to do under 69 Alpha, which would give the courts their full 66 authority, and this went through a normal sent after getting reviewed by their office, they're limited. So that finding that they were in the scope of their duties when they were looking at the group chat wasn't a thing that the CCA could do here. The Coast Guard Court of Criminal Appeals didn't have the authority. So that language in the previous vacated opinion is, is rendered null and void. So CAF reassesses it does so without that finding, and what happened here ultimately, sir? The same thing. That's right, That's right. the same <laughs> uh, Because they, they said the, that, that finding of fact was not you know, necessary uh, for the way the court came out. The, the one specification where they did uphold the conviction, that, that chief, ha- chief happened to be at the dry dock and received the message and checked it immediately, so there was that contemporaneity, so did require that finding of fact. So luckily, the previous 18 minutes you listened to before this postscript are not rendered moot. Uh, We were able to save it, but we didn't want to send this podcast out without at least touching on this kind of nerdy but important aspect of the decision after it was released. It's also good uh, for the field and fleet to know that we no longer have a CAF opinion that says anytime a member of a group chat checks their messages that they're in the line of duty, you know, they're at work, so to speak. So you, you can still argue it, but it's not in a CAF opinion anymore. That's right. So the the link between cell phones and whether you're truly ever off work will have to be answered another day. I think that's all we got here. Yeah, well, thank you for the extra five minutes of attention. Hope it was worth your time. And I will be the one to say this time, remember to smash that subscribe button. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us today for another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents podcast. If anything you heard sparked a thought, we'd love to connect with you. Your comments help us create better future content for the field or the fleet. Reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram. The information can be found in the show notes for today's episode. The views expressed in today's podcast are those of the presenters and not necessarily the Judge Advocate General's or the Department of the Army or the Department of Defense. Thanks, counsel, for both sides. And the court will stand in recess until further order of the court.